0: Good morning church. We are in John chapter 19. I'll be reading from verse 1 through to verse 16. John chapter 19. So when Pilate, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, "Hail, king of the Jews." And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Therefore when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium, and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not now know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, He brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. Lord Jesus, we look to you as the one who was crucified, the one who died and is alive, the one who defeated death. Um, I pray that you would put in our hearts the proper reverence for these passages, um, that you would would teach us uh, to to think rightly about these things and to worship well around these truths. We thank you for the love that you have for us, for the great extent that you've gone to, to show your love for us. We pray that our response would be worthy. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds of the church, goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Now there's only three people mentioned by name, uh, three human people, mentioned by name in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, and strangely enough, Pontius Pilate. So let's talk about Pontius Pilate a little bit more. Now, we were introduced to him last week, but since he's here again, let's fill in some details about his life. Pilate is not a good guy. Uh, He's not a nice guy, and he's not good at what he's supposed to do. But still, it is possible to have at least a little pity for the guy or, or, or a respect, at least, for the difficult situation he finds himself in since it was his assignment to keep peace in the Middle East. Now, even if you don't like him, you can see that he's been given a really tough job, a job which he has not done well up to this point, even when we meet him in the Gospel of John. When we read of um, what we read of in the Gospels is not Pilate's first run-in with the Jewish authorities. He had already made himself a lot of enemies and almost lost his job when he thought it would be a good idea to hang up pictures of uh, religious-type pictures of the emperor all over Jerusalem and had coins minted that had all sorts of pagan religious symbols on them. Now, for the religious Jew, this was called idolatry, and it didn't go over well. So when we meet him in John 19, he's already in a precarious position, uh, one that will not get any better. After the events of the Gospels, Pilate, Pilate uh, overreacted in uh, a dispute with some Samaritans, actually, and slaughtered uh, a whole bunch of them. And the survivors, the other Samaritans, complained to the governor of Syria, who uh, was over Pilate in the, in the org structure, uh, who had Pilate recalled to Rome to have to answer to Caesar, to Tiberius Caesar. Um, Tiberius died before Pilate could stand trial, and his successor Caligula, as we mentioned last week, politely encouraged Pilate to kill himself, which many historians say he did. But here in John 19 and John 18, which we looked at last week, the man we meet is not a man standing on politically stable ground. Again, it's his job to keep peace in a place that historically has not been peaceful. It's no easy task. He's already come under attack, and he can't afford another slip-up. Now, at this point, the chief priests of the Jews have brought Jesus to Pilate, uh, but they didn't bring any charges against him. They didn't bring the list of accusation. It's not just that they didn't bring good charges. They really didn't bring any. In chapter 18, verse 29, you glance back at that verse. It says, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Okay, these are not legal best practices. So Pilate says, then you deal with them. If you're not going to tell me what he did wrong, you deal with them. But they say, we can't because we want to kill him. And at this point, Rome had taken away the rights of the Jews to um, execute criminals. So Pilate had brought Jesus in for questioning in, into a private room. And his, his own verdict is there in, in uh, verse 30, 38 of chapter 18. He says, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him at all. Jesus is innocent, which shows us very clearly that the person handling his case is not. Pilate is guilty. And in this passage, in this entire chapter, we see Pilate's guilt uh, be established. We can be sure that he is not innocent. I'll remind you of something that we covered before, this entire section of Scripture, beginning with the arrest of Jesus and on to his burial. It is of an upside-down nature. It looks, to some... That Jesus is the victim, but he's actually the one with all the authority. It looks as if there are those who are taking his life from him, but Jesus has already said, I lay my, my life down of my own accord, and we'll see that he will take it up again, just as promised. It looks like Jesus is on trial, and in a sense that's true, but the, the, the more full truth is this. Everyone else is on trial. The disciples the Jews, the Romans, everyone. And in the end, everyone comes out equally guilty. And Pilate looks like the classic guilty party here. His first tactic is bartering, knowing that Jesus is innocent, knowing as he does the injustice of what is taking place. He first offers Jesus to the people as a sort of lesser injustice in the Barabbas trade, which we... Uh, finished up with last week. You can look at the um, last two verses of chapter 18 for the details. Letting a criminal go free is also an injustice, but it would be a lesser injustice than having the innocent punished. I'll repeat that. Letting a criminal go free is an injustice, but it is a lesser injustice than having the innocent punished. But the, the crowds, influenced as they were by the chief priests and leaders of the people, they want Barabbas to go free, and... They want Jesus to be killed. A double injustice. Next, Pilate tries another tactic. Uh, They have already asked for his life. They want Jesus killed. And and Pilate is unwilling to to obey their wishes at this point. We know that Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus. So now we come to verse 1 in chapter 19. It says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. He doesn't want Jesus to die. He doesn't believe that Jesus deserves to be killed, but he is still going to punish him even though he finds no fault in him at all. This is a sentence being passed on Pilate. We see him as the unjust leader that he is. Now we know from verse 4 coming up, which we've read, and verse uh, 38 where he says, I find no fault in him at all, that Pilate still doesn't think Jesus is guilty. He still has no reason to kill Jesus. Knowing this, we have to rethink what we're usually taught or what we usually imagine when we mention the scourging of Jesus. Now, believe me, I don't mean to downplay anything about these horrible events. Uh, We shouldn't soften things that are meant to be difficult. This is uh, a tragedy and a, a, a horror story, really. And and we have to accept that we have to see this that these are not beautiful things happening here. We can't gloss over them and put them in beautiful lighting and make it artistic. This is this is ugly stuff. So I don't want to downplay what's going on here. However, there is a tendency to exaggerate and dramatize these events in order to evoke even more of a visceral reaction. Um, so in what well, you've you've probably been told and maybe seen portrayed in in artwork or film, is that the scourging was done with something like the cat of nine tails, sharp bits of bone and metal attached to leather cords, tearing flesh from bone and even exposing the internal organs. Now, this was one type of scourging. That type of torture did exist, but it was used sometimes as a death penalty. Um, there, There were at least two other kinds of scourging, one with a normal whip, another with flexible rods, and these were more mild forms of scourging. They were used as a corrective measure, as a slap on the wrist, but exaggerated, not as a means of capital punishment. Now, since Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus, it is very, very unlikely that the more violent and grotesque method of scourging was used. So Pilate has him beaten and then mocked. Now this is important. Verses 2 and 3 show the other side of the crimes being committed. They show evil uh, of a different shade. Read verses 2 and 3. It says, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, king of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Now much ink has been spilled in order to describe the physical tortures that Jesus suffers. And you can't avoid that kind of discussion. It's here. God has determined that our salvation come through these means. Your soul's security is directly tied to the horrors of crucifixion. But much less time is spent in considering the non-physical tortures of the whole event. The open-handed slap of the servant of the high priest in the last chapter would have begun this humiliation, Peter's denial, Judas's kiss, um, also, these, these are things that cut deeper than whips. Now we move into the mocking of evil. And when evil mocks the good, when evil mocks the good, you see it as it is. When you think of satanic evil, um, brutal evil, you you might think of nails through hands and feet, but you would do just as well to think of this game they're playing. They're scoffing at holy things. Now, it is this perverted kind of humor that Psalm 1 considers as the pinnacle, or rather the lowest point, of sin, saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of of the scornful. There's a progression, right? There's walking and then standing and then sitting, being established. And there's a progression in the type of evil company corrupting good, good morals here too. There's the ungodly, there's the sinners, and then finally, there's the scornful. It is the scornful that we see here. The crown of thorns, the purple robe, and the rest are all part of the scorn. The total disregard for holy things. Irreverence at its highest level. When these soldiers strike Jesus, they are not punishing him, uh, not in the sense of a a, uh, a a courtroom or an official legal punishment. They, they are playing a game. The other Gospels note that for this part, Jesus was blindfolded. Have you ever heard of the game, or played perhaps, Blind Man's Bluff? One is blindfolded, others touch him, and he has to guess who it was. Well that's a that's a corruption of the original name of the game which is blind man's buff as in buffet old word for strike though satan should buffet though trials should come right this is what's what's happening they're playing a game striking jesus and saying if you're from god say who struck you and meanwhile jesus remains silent humiliated and bleeding head wounds bleed a lot um and the crown of thorns was not a gentle crown. now I have I have a thorn here from a kind of acacia bush um, that I brought back from from Jerusalem. Let's see if you can kind of see it here. You can find the same kind of plant you know in, in California, but I brought this back from Jerusalem and, um, and I have this I keep this in my desk. It's from the same town where Jesus died where these Roman soldiers were stationed. It's three and a half inches long. Um, Now, the purple robe will eventually be removed before the the crucifixion, along with every other stitch of clothing. To ensure maximum humiliation, the crown of thorns remains. Now, what the Romans are doing in jest, out of wickedness and dishonor, revealed true spiritual realities nonetheless. They say mocking, Hail King of the Jews, but Jesus is the King of the Jews. They bow, but we know one day every knee will bow. They crown him as part of a torture, but we read in Hebrews 2 verse 9, it says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus called this the hour of his glory, his glorification. The writer of Hebrews says he is crowned with glory and honor, not thorns, but with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. There are deep things of God in this horrible picture. The crown of made of thorns, after our first parents sinned in the garden, the curse was placed on them and on the ground itself, on the earth. In Genesis 3.18, it says of the ground, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So here Jesus wears the symbol of the curse of original sin on his head, suffering more than Adam did, having lost more than Adam lost, in order to gain what Adam could not. Verses 4 and 5. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Now Pilate repeats his verdict. The man is innocent. Which means, of course, that the guy who just ordered him to be beaten, tortured, struck, mocked, crowned with thorns. That man is the man at fault. Now why would Pilate go to all the trouble? Why would he do this? Well, for on the one hand, he needs to appease the bloodlust. He needs to show the crowds and their leaders that he has taken their complaint seriously. Uh, The scourging, the whipping was done not only as a punishment at times, but as a means of interrogation. So he needed to make it look like he really questioned Jesus about all of these important matters. He wants to show them that this is a punished man, that Pilate has taken care of things. And perhaps he means to appeal to their sense of compassion, if they have any, in showing them the humiliated subject before them, in showing Jesus with the robe and with the thorns, with the blood. Pilate is also mocking the Jews themselves. They don't want Jesus to even be allowed to pretend to be a king. Pilate isn't just mocking Jesus, but the very idea of a Messiah or of a king of the Jews existing at all. This kind of mockery will be shown on the sign placed on the cross, the king of the Jews. And the priests will complain and say, no, but say he said I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate will leave it there in order to throw shade in both directions at once, at Jesus and at those who want him dead. In saying, I find no fault in him, he is saying in one way, you did this, not me. Which will be Pilate's angle the entire time, trying to shift blame, trying to wash his hands, and being about as successful as Lady Macbeth. Verse 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Pilate here is being sarcastic. He knows that they can't crucify Jesus. They aren't allowed to, and honestly, they probably couldn't stomach it. This the, the art of that torture was, was Roman, not Jewish. And for the third time here, Pilate says that Jesus is innocent. And while he may be able to convince himself that he's doing the right thing, that he's speaking justly and saying what's right, the more he confesses that Jesus is innocent, the more he is admitting that he is not. And this crowd is certainly not either. They call to crucify him. And this call for crucifixion is man's unbridled hatred towards God being expressed. And of course, that is what we're witnessing in the entire chapter, in the entire scene. Hatred being given its place, given room to move about and fester and grow. And then murder inevitably comes as the result. Jesus has told the people in the Sermon on the Mount, the one who hates in his heart is guilty of murder, because if hatred is allowed to move about freely, murder is the result. These chapters tell us of the murder of God, but it reveals the motive behind it the heart condition, the essential problem that exists within the heart of the unregenerate. Man hates God, man is a murderer. Man hates God because God is our competition for authority. The crowd, and specifically the leaders who are stirring up all this trouble, try to explain themselves in verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Now we are 19 chapters into the, into John's Gospel, and we've seen that John... More than any other gospel writer is diligent to present Jesus as true God and God's true Son. That's how the whole book started, you'll remember. And John includes evidences for Christ's divinity from a number of different sources, from different directions. Here we see that John cites the enemies of Jesus. Just as we've seen, even the demons believe and tremble. These Jews finally bring forth a charge against Jesus when they were recently unable to do so. But look what they leave out, they, out here, or rather what John leaves out, what isn't included. They don't make any mention yet of the king of the Jews. They don't say, oh, the, uh, this man says he he's a king. No, in, in John, the whole line of thinking, that line of thinking uh, for now stays with Pilate. The Jews are more theologically minded at this point. They say he has, he has to die because... He has made himself the son of God. Now, this is a true charge, just as Jesus is really the king of the Jews. So, he really is and truly is the son of God. The charges, then, are not being presented here as superfluous or even as fraudulent from John's perspective. John doesn't record false witnesses here. He shows the enemies of God to be knowledgeable, misguided, of course, but they are knowledgeable of what they are doing. They don't say, you know, oh, he robbed the liquor store or something like that. They don't make up stories about Jesus plotting the demise of the government. They say truthfully, he says he is the son of God. What, what this does once more is simultaneously show Jesus to be true and every man a liar. Yes, they're telling the truth, but they're living out lies. They are living out a false reality where they are God and where the Christ is a criminal while Jesus is on trial, every other party is being judged and every other party is shown to be guilty of crimes against God and humanity. Verses 8 and 9 read like this. It says, Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now look at where Pilate is again. He's not angry with this moment. He's not amused. He's not confused. He is afraid. He was more afraid, it says, meaning or indicating that he was already afraid of the situation he found himself in before this. Uh, of course, he was afraid of a riot. We know that. He was afraid of losing his job. But why is he more afraid now? A few reasons. One, because he realized He realizes he's dealing with some very dedicated, stubborn people who've just pulled out their trump card, their blasphemy card, and he knows that they mean business now. But could it be that his fear now arises not only from the political opponents he has outside, but from the person whose life is now in his hands? This man has behaved strangely, telling Pilate that he was born to a heavenly heavenly kingdom, that he has a divine order to testify of the truth Jesus, when questioned, became the questioner. He has been the strangest person Pilate has ever judged. But now Pilate learns that this man has claimed to be divine. Could it be that Pilate shivers a little bit because he wonders if it could be true? It seems from the story that he is at least considering the possibility because he brings Jesus back inside for more questioning. He asks him where he's from. Pilate is really looking for more reasons to let Jesus go free, I think. But the thing is, Jesus has already answered the question in verse 18. Or sorry, chapter 18, verse 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is not hiding his divine nature or his divine origins. So, Jesus stays silent. And we know from Isaiah that this moment was prophesied. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus knew that he had come into the world to suffer in this way. So he's not pleading, he's not bartering or begging, he is not trying to get out. And he has no interest in refuting the charges that were recently brought up, since after all, they are true. He is the Son of God. In verse 10, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate is not used to being treated like this. Jesus giving Pilate the silent treatment is making him very uncomfortable. Surely many people have begged for their life. Many people who Pilate judged in this place would have fallen to their knees, begging for mercy, not Jesus. So Pilate tries to convince Jesus of the gravity of the situation he finds himself in. He says, don't you know what's going on here? Don't you know I'm the most powerful person in the room? Wrong. Pilate claims to have authority and power, and Jesus knows better. So, as one who was sent to testify of the truth, Jesus says this, You could have no power at all unless it had been given you from above. Now, we know from Romans 13 that there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. But when Jesus says this same truth, there's there's another ring to it. There's another level to the conversation. Jesus has already told Pilate, you say rightly that I am a king. But then he said, my kingdom is not of this world. The implication is that his kingdom is above this world from heaven. And Pilate has already been told, this man says he is the son of God. And if Jesus has said, I am the king of heaven... When Jesus says that Pilate's authority is from above, he is implying that Pilate's authority is from Jesus. Pilate says, don't you know I have power? Don't you know I have authority? And Jesus says, don't you know that I'm only loaning it to you? Christ is in control of this entire situation. But then Jesus has something else interesting. There in verse 11, he says, The one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. He doesn't say Pilate isn't sinning. He is, obviously. But the greater sin belongs to someone else. Now, this could be Caiaphas, the the, the priest who delivered Jesus. Or it could be Judas. The word delivered has been used before in John to describe what Judas has done delivering Jesus over to the enemies. Um, But the idea of delivering Jesus to Pilate seems to refer more to the high priest and his cronies. Um, So it could be intentionally vague here. John likes to do those double meanings, you know. Either way, whether it's Judas or Caiaphas, their sin was greater because they were sinning against greater knowledge. When Jesus speaks to certain cities in Israel, he says that it would be better in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Bethsaida and Chorazin. Why? Because the Israelite cities, Bethsaida and Chorazin, saw Jesus. They saw greater evidences for God's greatness and goodness than Sodom or Gomorrah ever did. Pilate is guilty of great evil, but he is not as guilty as Judas, who had seen with his own eyes the healings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, who had heard with his own ears the teachings of Jesus, who had received the love and the kindness of Christ. The high priest would have known better. He knew the prophecies. He knew what it meant to be the Son of Man. He sh- and, and he knew the law against, you know, killing an innocent person. So their sins were greater because to whom much is given. Much is required. Now I believe this conversation left Pilate feeling uneasy. Verse twelve says From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Pilate still wants to release Jesus. He doesn't want to be wrong, but he wants to be vulnerable even less, he wants to be unsafe even less. He doesn't want to crucify Jesus, who he knows to be innocent and suspects of being supernatural. But he wants even less to make an enemy of Caesar. And this is where the choice is made. Whom will you serve? This isn't just an issue of rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, which we're told to do, or just following orders or anything like that. This is an issue of theology. Who is your God? The Jews bring up this issue. Jesus of Nazareth says he's king. And if he's a king, you can't be a friend of Caesar. And if you don't kill him, you are not a friend of Caesar. There's a special touch of irony here. We talk all the time about how many of the Jews, much of Israel at this time, wanted their Messiah to overthrow Rome, right? They wanted a military, a political Messiah who would save them from Caesar. But now they're speaking as if they were thrilled to have Caesar as their king. In fact, in verse 15, that's what they say. We have no king but Caesar. This is political maneuvering at the highest level, and it is deceptive, and it is wicked. They have never convinced Pilate that Jesus deserves death, but they do convince him that he has to kill him. This is what the end of a long road of compromise looks like. The first evil was easy, you know, maybe having Jesus beaten, questioning him. But because evil was not dealt with with a strong hand at the beginning, the sinner is now caught, unable to resist and all the more knowledgeable of their own wickedness. Pilate is trapped. And I do not mean that he was unable to resist on a cosmic level, it was physically impossible for him to do the right thing. I am saying that he had started cutting off all his avenues of escape with every preceding compromise, and this is always the way sin works. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, final and inevitable. Pilate is drifting downwards. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement and but in Hebrew gabatha now it was the preparation day of the passover and about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews behold your king now this place this pavement is where the final verdict would be given the official word on the case it is where pilate washes his hands in a feeble attempt to cleanse himself of the guilt of this crime The preparation day of the Passover would be the day before the Passover meal. Friday, the sixth hour, has caused some confusion because of the difference in Roman and Jewish timekeeping. It is most likely six in the morning. Pilate presents Jesus once more. Now, instead of simply saying, Behold the man, he says, Behold your king. Now, in public, Pilate has not mentioned the idea of a king. That's dangerous, but they brought it up now. They brought up the idea of a king in order to make Pilate uncomfortable. So now he's turning it around on them or attempting to do so and pinning them with the political poison of being associated with a rebel king. He says, behold, your king. In other words, if he is condemned, then so are you. And there's more truth in that sentiment than any of them could know. In verse 15, but they cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. For Pilate to call Jesus the king of the Jews, and for the chief priests themselves to say, we have no king but Caesar, shows us how upside down this situation is. Everything has become backwards. Everything is off. Everything is wrong. And unfortunately, that's that's where we leave Pilate. Pilate doesn't have a happy ending, right? One Puritan pastor had these sobering words to say about this this day, and we would do well to listen. He says, You may do exactly what Pilate did. He is simply an example of a man who lacks decision of character, who does not possess the courage of his convictions, who tries to compromise with wrong, who disobeys conscience through fear of personal loss. It would be easy to despair when looking only at Pilate, but you, you can take heart. Because it's not who the story is about. (laughs) Jesus Christ is still the one in control throughout this story. He is still the focus of this story. He is still where we are to cast our eyes. And He is still, to this day, in the business of saving souls and forgiving sinners. And so even if we recognize ourselves and our sins and the sins of others and and we see parallels and we see these mirrors that we'd rather not look into, we also cling to the words that began this sermon, the Apostles' Creed, which closes with the confession, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe in these things and we cling to these hopes. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Jesus, let us ache for the resurrection. Let us live in light of the everlasting life that awaits us. Jesus, we thank you for the cross and the suffering that you endured for our sakes. We believe that it was effective and that our sins are forgiven. Bless your church. Bless us with deep understanding of these deep things. It is for your glory and in your name that we pray. Amen.